Amen. You guys may be seated. And for those of you who have children uh, and you utilize our children's ministry, just by way of reminder, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children there now. But for those of you whose children stay in the service, just by way of reminder, we love having them in the service, just learning alongside of us, learning the rhythms of worship alongside of us. Uh, We've been going through for some time now our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, known as the the 1689 or the 1677. We've just been reading it paragraph by paragraph, and we finished chapter 9 last week. And this morning we begin uh, chapter 10. And so I wanted to read that. Uh, the first paragraph for us in chapter 10 that deals with effectual calling. And these are available in the pew in front of you if you want to read along or you want to see the the passages of Scripture that the confession kind of brings in as it systematizes these doctrines of, of Scripture. But paragraph one says this, In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit, right? We talk about word and spirit going together. By his word and spirit, those he's predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. And so we see that God is at the center of our salvation and it's good that God is at the center of our salvation. For our salvation to be grounded in anything else would be fickle. But because our salvation is authored by God, he's the sustainer of our salvation as well, we can have confidence that we can truly be saved. So Mark chapter 10, turn with me there. We've been going through the gospel of Mark, and we began looking at chapter 10 last week. And and this morning, I'm going to cover a a larger chunk of scripture. We're actually going to work through verses 13 down through verse 31. And for those of you who like to cross-reference uh, the, 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 the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, you, you'll find uh, these um, historical events in Matthew chapter 19, and you'll find them in Luke chapter 18 as well. But allow me to read through this passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to, to think through this together. John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he He wrote these words, and the Holy Spirit of God has preserved these words so that we can read them this morning. It says this, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God." Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, 
what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and your, and your father. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying amongst themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we've left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to spend time in your word. I pray that over the next few minutes that your spirit would help us to see things clearly. God, that Christ would be exalted to us and that the freeness of the gospel would be heard and internalized this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so there is, uh, like I said a moment ago, there's a, there's a lot more text here that we uh, typically cover, but there is a bigger picture here that's crucial for us uh, to see and, and to understand. And if I had to sum this entire passage up with, with one word, that one word would be salvation. would sum it up with that word, salvation. Right? We, we have in, in this historical account, we have two encounters. We have Jesus encountering children, some which uh, we know to include infants. We get that from Luke's account. And then we see Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, uh, as he's been uh, described. And, and then Jesus uses both of these encounters uh, to teach his disciples, uh, specifically to teach his apostles, as we see is his is custom. And he uses this to discuss some things with them as it relates to the kingdom of God, right? These encounters, they teach us something about the nature of the kingdom of God, the nature of salvation, the nature of receiving the kingdom of God, of inheriting eternal life. 
And we see included in our text this morning this standard that God has, right? And, and we're forced to ask the question, if God's standard is uncompromising, right? We say along with the apostles, we say along with these disciples, right? If it's as high as Jesus is describing, is, is communicating to them, then how can anyone be saved? How can we be saved? Now, before we get to answering this question, let's survey just where we are in our text. Last week, we, we looked at uh, marriage, and this week, the text brings up children, brings children into the forefront of the discussion, right? Is um, Jesus and his uh, disciples are, are, are ministering. We, we see um, these, these children being brought to Christ, being brought to him. And our text doesn't identify who brought the children. It, it could be parents, it could be siblings, it could be close relatives, it could be friends, but children, including very young children, infants, uh, were being brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them. Now, there's no, there's no indicator here that the children were uh, like physically debilitated. There was anything going on with their health uh, that, that would... Uh, it doesn't seem that they're coming to Jesus so that he might heal them, as we've seen Jesus do uh, so far in the Gospel of Mark. These children were being brought to Jesus so that he might bless them, and, and I'll talk uh, more about that in just a moment. Well, as these children are, are being brought to him, his apostles begin to rebuke them, okay? And the NKJV, uh, which is the translation that I, I read out of as I preach here, uh, it has it worded as if the disciples are rebuking the parents uh, or the, the people who brought the children. And, and grammatically, I'm not so sure that that's the case, although it could be the case. The ESV translate this, translates this a bit more grammatically correct, in my opinion. In Mark 10, verse 13, the ESV puts it this way, <clears throat> and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Okay, the disciples rebuked them. It seems that the disciples, they were probably rebuking everyone that was involved, right? The, the children for coming, the children that were being carried, the people that were bringing the children, right? they were all, I think, being rebuked by the disciples. And that word for rebuke is strong language. The word is used, for instance, uh, and we've just seen this in our journey in the Gospel of Mark so far, it's used as it relates to uh, exorcisms. We see that in chapter 1, verse 25. We see that in chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 25. It's also used of those who would oppose the will of God. We see that in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, verse 39. We see that in chapter 8, verses 30 to 33. Now, perhaps the disciples at the time were running interference for Jesus at a time where his ministry was, was really popular, right? Maybe they think that they need to manage his calendar, perhaps, right? He, he's the Christ. He has important things that he needs to do, and he can't be bothered with seemingly small, insignificant trivial things. And sadly, that's how children were often viewed at that time in history, especially before five years of age, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? As Christians, we see the value 
in life, no matter the size of the person, no matter the age of the person, no matter the capacities of the person, no matter the location of the person, right? That is why it is a Christian position to be pro-life. But children have historically not been valued in this sort of way. As I was studying, I came across this comment about a papyrus that, w- that was found and in, in dated June 17th, 1 BC. So, so right around the time, right before Jesus came through the incarnation. And it was a, it was a letter of instruction from a husband to his expectant wife. And this husband apparently wasn't around at the time that his wife had given birth. Uh, and so he, in, in around the time of the letter, he thinks that perhaps she has given birth. And the, the uh, papyrus that we found, it said, uh, it said this. It says, uh, these instructions from the husband to the wife. He says, if it's a male child, let it live. If it's a female, cast it out. Right? And, and I know that this is anecdotal, but this does seem to capture a larger problem as it relates to how children historically had been viewed. It was not uh, at all uh, uh, what we would consider to be a Christian perspective. Now, it wasn't long ago that Jesus took a child in his lap, right? And he taught the disciples, right? If we look back and remember working through Mark chapter 9, Right, Mark chapter 9, verse 37, he says, Whoever receives what, one such child in my name, uh, and whoever, uh, uh, or whoever receives such child in my name receives me. Right? And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, right? the Father who sent me. Yet, here we are. Right? The disciples are seemingly more informed by the culture of the time than by Jesus' view of of children, and they rebuke these children. They rebuke the people that are bringing the children to Jesus, and they they try to intercept them. Okay, they're they're a nuisance. They are a bother. And <clears throat> and by the way, how many times have you been in a church setting where noisy children are treated that way? Right? If we think we're far removed from thinking of children as nuisance, as a nuisance, right? The look and the glances that a young parent gets, right? It's as sinful as the disciples are in this text. And, and I'm not saying that we should sit and let children scream in service. I think dads especially should help moms out by taking a little one out, getting them settled, bringing them back in, right? Reassure them. But our church should never view children as a distraction in our gathering, right? We should let them come to to Jesus. But getting back to our text, the way that the disciples treated children, it angered Jesus. It angered Jesus. In fact, the phrase translated by the NKJV as greatly displeased in verse 14, it means indignant. It means indignant. It's the only time that that word is used of Jesus. Right? Matthew and Luke, they don't even use this word in their accounting of this same historical event. And, and, and Jesus, he gives voice to this indignation. He gives voice to this righteous anger to the disciples. He doesn't suppress it. He says to them, you let the children come to me. Right? But that's not all he says. Not only did he command the disciples to let the children come for them, but he charges them to never prevent them from coming to him. In other words, He charges the disciples not to commit the sin of partiality 
toward those who would be treated as lesser than in their coming to Jesus. Listen, God is no respecter of persons, right? The kingdom of God is for all types of people. The kingdom of God is for all types of people. Now, as Jesus often does, right, he he uses all of this to teach his disciples. He tells them that if you don't receive the kingdom of God like one of these children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. (coughs) And then he does more than what was asked of him. He doesn't just lay his hands on these children. He takes them into his arms. He he lays his hands on them and he blesses them. And we see the compassion of Jesus in this, don't we? We see the heart of Christ. We see the the, the heart of of his first advent ministry and and, uh, who he allows to approach him and, and how he treats those that are approaching him. But Jesus, he takes this little group of people who are weak and in many ways, again, deemed a nuisance, and he grabs them and he hugs them and he lays his hands on them and he pronounces a blessing over them, which is a common thing to do in Jewish, Jewish culture. However, Jesus does this with young children, right? He does this with young children. One commentator says this, he says, one will search Jewish and early Christian literature in vain for sympathy toward the young comparable to that shown by Jesus. Jesus, he he shows these children great compassion and gives us such a template to follow in doing so, right? And, And as I look out, this morning, and and I see all of you with your children, right? I see parents faithfully bringing their children, their helpless children, their noisy children to the Lord, right? And I praise God for that, and we should be a church that praises God for that, right? Now, moving on to the next scene, right? We we see Jesus leave, and he's He's on the road, and this man comes, and he runs, and in humility, he kneels before Christ. It's obvious that he has this great respect for Jesus to show such high honor, to show such high humility. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks him one question. He says this, good teacher, is what he calls him, what can I do to inherit eternal life? We see that in verse 17. Right? And by that, he means this, how can I earn salvation? How can I earn salvation? And again, that, he really wants to <clears throat> know the answer to this question. This isn't, this isn't someone that is seeking to test Jesus in the same way that we saw the Pharisees attempting to test Jesus last week with their one-question exam that they administered. Right. Now, the way that Jesus answers this question is first by asserting the goodness of God, right? And he, and he asserts the goodness of God in the form of a question. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Right? We see that in verse 18. Now, this isn't Jesus saying that he's not God, right? We know from the sweeping testimony of Scripture that Jesus is the eternal God, right? The second person of the Trinity. So Jesus is getting at something else in in the way in which he's asking this man 
a question. This is a, uh, it would be appropriate for us to think of this as a leading question, right? Jesus is really answering the man's question by providing a contrast between God who is good and everything that is not God, right? Okay? So Jesus, he's, he's taking this man somewhere, and, and then he proceeds to speak of God's, uh, of, of our good God's standard by pointing toward the Decalogue, toward the, the Ten Commandments, the enduring moral law of God. And Jesus, interestingly enough, he doesn't begin with the first table of the law, right? We talk a lot about the first and second table of the law, the first four commandments making up the first table of the law, which deals with our worship, our fidelity to the Lord, and the back six commandments flowing from that, our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. Jesus begins there by quoting aspects of the second table of the law, all right? Now, the first table does show up, but I think that it's implicit, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, the, the rich young ruler, instead of seeing his failing to miss the mark of God's glorious standard, right? We see him instead, this mindset, uh, he, he, he thought that he was doing pretty well, right? He, he was obviously missing Jesus's point about God alone being good, right? He says, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth, right? And then the moment comes when Jesus points at his idol, right? And he demonstrated through his pointing of this idol, that the man isn't keeping the, even the first four commandments. He doesn't have the first four commandments, right? And I'm moved every time I read this account because Jesus, he points at this man's God, right? And he tells him to give it away. But Mark gives us this commentary about him pointing at this man's God. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. Jesus looking at him loved him loved this idolater. Now, I don't know who the rich young ruler is. Um, there's, there's, there's different guesses that people have, you know, and, and this is not thus saith the Lord, but man, Jesus looking at someone and loving them, I can't help but to think eventually this man had to have come to faith in Christ. Like when you're loved by Jesus and pursued by Jesus in this sort of way, does it, you know, how, how did this end up for this particular man? We, we, we don't know definitively how things end up, but Jesus looking at him, he loved him, and then he pointed out this man's God, and this is the way he does it, verse 21, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, take up the cross, and follow after me. Again, that's verse 21, and the man, sadly, he, he can't let this go, right? He can't let go of his God, he can't let go of his idolatry. And I imagine that upon hearing that from Christ, he just drops his head, right? Our text said that he walked away sorrowful because, quote, he had great possessions. And that's verse 22. So this man that was so eager to have eternal life, he found the prospect of holding on to his material possessions to be preferred over the eternal life that was offered by Jesus. And how sad is that, right? Yet we see it all the time, right, in the things that we hold closed-fisted. And we do this in the face of the clear 
question of Jesus that's relevant for us today. If you remember back in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 to 37, he says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, Jesus isn't saying, get rid of your property and that's the path of salvation. That's not what Christ is saying here, right? Jesus is, is, is targeting the heart. Jesus is saying, what or who are you worshiping? That's what, he's, that's what he's getting at, right? And we can often find out the answer to that question by the things that we often ruminate on or the things we get angry if they are threatened or, or uh, the things we worry about or have great anxiety over. Usually those are things that we've elevated to a status that they were never intended to be elevated to, right? But Jesus is targeting the heart, right? Uh, and so we want to take note of that in his interaction with the rich young ruler. Now, Hold that in your mind because we're going to revisit that in a moment and we're going to put these pieces together. Right? After Jesus finishes speaking with the rich young ruler, he turns and he uses it as another teaching opportunity for his disciples. Right? So he teaches his disciples as it relates to children coming to him and then we see him teach the disciples as it relates to his interaction with the rich young ruler. And as he turns to teach his disciples, and I love that this is included for us, he calls them children, by the way. All right, we see that in verse 25. Right? But Jesus tells them that it's hard for those that trust in their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's so hard that Jesus uses a parable to illustrate it. And, and, and kids, uh, you know, a parable, and we've talked about this before, is, is God using like a story or him using a, a figure of speech or hyperbole to be able to communicate something to us in a more uh, vivid sort of way. And he says this, he says, it's easier, and if we can picture this for a moment, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, right? A very silly picture when we begin to think about it, right? But God uses this language to show the difficulty men have to let go of their idolatry, right? And the disciples, their response, perhaps under the weight of despair, right? <clears throat> because of this standard put forward by Jesus, right? This standard, again, where he contrasted the goodness of God with their spiritual state, they ask, who then could be saved? Who can possibly be saved? <coughs> and Jesus' answer is, with men, it's impossible, Right? With man, it's impossible. Right? So, so that, that weight that you're feeling at the moment, that's a right weight if all you have in view is yourself and what you can see. Right? But with God, all things are possible, verse 27. And then we conclude that section of Scripture by seeing Peter speak up, as is Peter's custom. He's always ready to speak up, we've seen, right? But he speaks up for the rest of the group, and he reminds Jesus of how much they, the apostles, had sacrificed for Jesus, right? Their response is that they've given up everything for Jesus, but Jesus tells them that they've sacrificed nothing in comparison to what they have gained and in comparison to what they will gain, right? Now, again, I know that, that that's more text than we normally cover, but I wanted us to consider this whole section together because as, as I said a moment ago, it teaches us something about the nature of salvation. And there are three things primarily, and you'll see how they're interconnected with one another that I want us 
to walk away with this morning. And if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're using the fill in the blank, you can write this down. The first is this. We come to God as helpless children. We come to God as helpless children. There is a contrast between the rich young ruler who had so much, right, and these children who offered nothing. They offered nothing. What's interesting to me is that these disciples, they didn't intercept the rich young ruler, right? They didn't tell the rich young ruler that Jesus was too busy for him, right? The rich young ruler was the type of person to get access to Jesus. He looked like the type of person that should have access to Jesus. And again, this wasn't some arrogant man, right? He was ignorant, I think, but I don't think that he was, uh, and to say that you've kept the law of God is quite an arrogant thing to say, don't get me wrong, but I, I don't think that he was arrogant in the same way that we see, for instance, the religious leaders of the day, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, their, their arrogance as it relates to the law. He came genuinely, this guy did, but he refused to forsake his God. But there's this contrast that we see. Those who have nothing, those who bring nothing, right? Jesus said of them, such is the kingdom of God, right? And this is contrasted with one who had much, one who had everything according to worldly standards. He walked away sorrowful. He walked away sorrowful. Listen, the only way that we come to God is by sheer grace. It's by sheer grace. We don't come to him on our own two feet. We don't come to him with our resume. Everything that we've done for you, God, this is why I can stand before you. We don't come to our God with that sort of heart posture. We come to him like infants. We come to him like babies, we come with him, come to him with nothing to offer. Jonathan Edwards, that colonial pastor, once said, "We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary." Right? And Jesus, he he takes these children, he takes these babies, and he welcomes them. Right? He he treats them in such a countercultural way. It shouldn't be who he embraces, but he does embrace them. And in doing so, and he teaches us something about the nature of his kingdom, how it works, who is welcome, right? Think about how these children were brought to Jesus, right? Many of them couldn't even walk. They had to be carried. They did nothing to, their, uh, to contribute to their being embraced. They did nothing to contribute to their being touched or blessed by Jesus, and such is the kingdom of God. Such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is full of people that did not contribute to being there. Right? In God's kingdom, no one can say that Jesus accomplished 90% of the work and they had to accomplish the remaining 10% of the work. Right? That's erroneous. Right? That is you earning your salvation. Nobody enters the kingdom of God with bragging rights. No one. And one commentator says it like this, the, un the unchildlike piety of achievement, it must be abandoned in the recognition that to receive the kingdom is, a is to allow oneself to be given it. We are given the kingdom of God by sheer 
grace. We come to God like helpless children. Related to this, right, and we should see this clearly. Secondly, apart from God's salvation, it really is impossible. If it it weren't for God acting, if it weren't for God doing everything necessary for our salvation, you and I would have no hope. You and I would not be put in a right position before our sovereign, transcendent God. We are not good when we compare ourselves to the one who's truly good. We often compare ourselves to other people, right? And perhaps that's the pitfall that the rich young ruler fell into. I'm not I'm not sure. You know, maybe he looked around to see it how, you know, when, when Jesus asked him that question, maybe some people came to his mind or maybe he was looking around at some other people and he thought, you know, com- com- compared to them, I think I'm doing pretty well, right? But Jesus, he defined goodness as this incommunicable attribute of God. And kids, when I, I say that, I mean that God is something that we are not, God is something that we are not. And I'm saying that God is good, and we are not good. We are not good. This man, though he was more humble than most, he was still an idolater. He was still an idolater. He was still uh, falling short of God's glorious, unchanging standard. He kept the law according perhaps to his own standard, but his standard was not that of God's standard. Now, this man was apparently successful, right? And he was probably well-respected in the community. He, and, and he was not anti-Christ. He wasn't anti-Christ. He was a good, moral person as far as that goes, right? As far as that gets you, right? We have here just a snapshot of a man that we might look at and say, he's definitely a Christian, right? That guy's definitely a Christian, right? He's moral, He's trustworthy, he's honest, he's probably hardworking, right? And those are good things, good things. And we should say that those are good things. But those things do not erase the stain that is our sin. They don't erase the stain that is our sin. In other words, you can't justify yourself. You can't tip the scales. And Jesus cuts through all of this moralism, and he exposes this man's heart. Give away your God. Get rid of your God. The man couldn't do that, and he walked away sad, right? We see the ugliness of idolatry here, right? We see the ugliness of materialism, right? When stuff is preferred over God himself, when reputation and prestige is preferred over God himself. And listen, this is the condition of every human heart. It's the condition of every human heart. The disciples knew it. That's why they asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus answers that with man, it's impossible, right? In other words, you can't save yourself, right? You can't change your own sin-ridden heart. You need outside intervention, and that outside intervention must come from one who is truly good. It has to come from one who's truly good. It can't come from a fellow idol worshiper. Who's up for the task? God alone. God alone. With God, all things are possible. 
Verse 27, second part of verse 27, right? God alone is the one who gives us eternal life. The paragraph I just read from our confession a few moments ago, like it reiterates this for us. And in light of the text this morning, we could see the necessity of thinking this way, but God alone is the one who gives us eternal life. This is why I think connecting Jesus' interaction with the children and his interaction with the rich young ruler is crucial for us, right? God alone, from beginning to end, does the saving. And we, you and me, like infants, receive the benefits of it, though we've accomplished absolutely nothing to warrant such grace and mercy. What a good God we have, right? He's welcomed us into his kingdom according to his grace and his mercy, which is grounded in his good, unchanging character. The last thing to note is that our inheritance is more glorious than we know. Our inheritance is more glorious than we know. The rich young ruler, (coughs) excuse me, he walked away because he couldn't see it. He walked away because he couldn't see it. The disciples, they couldn't grasp it at the time either, right? Peter reminds us of, you know, just how much they didn't grasp it by his reminding of Jesus, just how much they had given up for him, right? It's as if in response to the rich young ruler going away sad, Jesus takes this as an opportunity to virtue signal, right? We're better than that guy. Jesus says to Peter and to the other disciples, the particularly the apostles, you've given up nothing compared to what you've gained. You've given up nothing compared to what you will gain. So both what you've gained in the here and now and what you're going to gain when Christ gloriously returns. There are benefits in the here and now to our union with Jesus, and there's benefits in the hereafter as it relates to our union with with Jesus, right? Following Jesus isn't I'm miserable for 70 to 80 years and then I receive an eternal reward. If you in this life find yourself to be a miserable Christian, you're not thinking about things right, right? I know Christians who have suffered immensely, immensely suffered, that are some of the most joyful people, right, that you'll ever meet, right? And it's because they've adopted the mindset that their happiness, their joy, their delight in the Lord isn't seeing themselves in a different circumstance, but it's about seeing Christ in them, in the here and now, and that drives their joy, that drives their happiness, that drives their delight, right? And Jesus says as much, right? We've been given so much, given more than what we could ever possibly give up, both now and in the kingdom to come, right? This is just a foretaste of what's to come. We've gained union with our Savior gen- genuinely, right? And we, we're reminded of this every Lord's Day, right? We're reminded of this. We're going to be reminded in a few moments when we come to the table and we take of the bread and we drink of the wine. We're going to remember that by grace, by the grace of God, that we share union with Jesus, that what he accomplished, we benefit from, right? That he has bridged this chasm that our sin created, that we are genuinely made right with God and that we can enjoy fellowship with God in the here and now, right? But it gets better than that because there's a day coming, right? We think about this glorious inheritance that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians when he points us to the Holy Spirit that lives inside of every true believer. And he says that the Holy Spirit of God is the guarantor right, of this inheritance, 
right? That he's keeping this inheritance for us until the day we truly acquire possession of it. What does that mean? That there's a day coming where we're going to enjoy even a richer, a better fellowship with God because it'll be one that has no hindrances, no obstacles, no sin, no suffering for all eternity. We're moving in that direction. And the fellowship that we enjoy now, we can say, this is good. This tastes good, but it gets better than this. It gets better than this. And if you find yourself not being able to think that way, it's because you haven't internalized just how glorious it is to share union with Christ Jesus. So I'd encourage you, talk to someone that you know in your life that's suffering a lot, a Christian that's going through troubles. Again, I find those types to be some of the most joyful people, steadfast people in the Lord because their happiness, their joy, their delight is not contingent on their circumstances. It's grounded, it's fixed in Jesus, who's their treasure. My dad's mother was a quadriplegic for most of her life, and she could be, I, really just move her eyes and have these memories going and, and visiting her in, in, a, uh, in a home often because she had to have round-the-clock round care um, uh, since her late 20s, late 20s until she died at, uh, in her 80s, I believe, and uh, she was one of the happiest people. When I look back on my um, interactions with her, I remember her always smiling, but not in a superficial way, right? <clears throat> not in a, uh, a, a K-love way, is if, if I can give an example. Some, you know, everything is just roses and tulips and whatever, but, but like in a, there's a deep abiding joy that was there, uh, that went beyond her inability to move her body. Right? That's impacted me to this day. And so we can have real deep abiding joy now, and we can look forward to that getting better. We've received so much more than what we've sacrificed for the kingdom of God. A couple of passages, and I'm going to close this in prayer. Very few people suffered as much as the Apostle Paul and I think Paul is a model for us for what joy looks like now and keeping a perspective on eternity. But he said this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 29, okay? It says, <clears throat> from the Jew, this is his resume of suffering, if you will. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in <clears throat> the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. <laughs> Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who was made to stumble and do I not burn with indignation? Now, how was Paul able to endure that type of suffering? What, what exactly was his secret? Well, we see his secret in another letter that he wrote at the church of Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, 
and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness, my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead, right? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's the secret of contentment, right? It's the secret of remembering this glorious inheritance that God has provided for us in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for time in your word. God, we ask that you would use it to strengthen us, to provoke us, Lord, toward uh, deeper fellowship with you. And Lord, we love you, and we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name.